Let's just start by introducing a few of the uh, things that are going on in Corinth and the church and a little bit of background material that might be helpful. Uh, this letter is addressed to a church living in one of the most immoral cities immoral cities in the Roman Empire. I think talked a little bit about this at some point, but in case you weren't uh, uh, familiar with that, uh, there was a phrase back then that was that went to behave as a Corinthian because Corinth had such a reputation for immorality, made so in part because the uh, it's located on the isthmus between northern Greece and southern Greece, and since taking the boat around southern Greece uh, with a your cargo, it was a treacherous place for ships back then, it was actually better for them to dock at Corinth to uh, have it portaged over the isthmus uh, to the other side. And so it was a it was a trade center, and uh, the uh, religion, of course, Greece uh, had a pantheon of, of gods, and Rome basically just stole them when they took over. But one of the, uh, the forms of worship back then was much like we've been studying in the Old Testament with Baal worship, uh, that uh, to worship the God was to commit acts of immorality. That was how you worship the God, to spur them on to give you life, help the crops, and so forth. And so every night a thousand temple prostitutes would come down out of the temple and would help you worship God, or the God, right? Their, their God. So you can only imagine. But it's kind of important to understand that, that Sexual immorality was rampant. It was not just that people did it, but it was a form of worship. It was part of their religion. And so there were Christians, as they were saved, they would come out of that background, and it took some of them a while to realize uh, that this has no part in proper living that honors the Lord. And they struggled with this, and you can kind of imagine it. It's kind of the problem that we have today. Is in some cases, people are brought... We're living in a day now where, you know, in, in Corinth, these people who were saved, these Gentiles who were saved, they had no clue what the Bible said by and large. And there's people now... You know, when I was raised up, everybody was a Christian. Everybody knew the Bible. At least they felt they did. Uh, today, there are people who have no clue what the Bible says because they're not raised in that. And so, this church understandably now is struggling with with moral questions because there is no solid background and unfortunately they have preachers who stand up and do not preach the truth and that just makes matters worse. But as we get into this you'll see how what a, a part that plays in uh, what's going on in the church. The church at Corinth was established on Paul's second missionary journey. Their first journey uh, brought them into Asia Minor, and they started uh, many of the churches, like we, as we went through Revelation, those seven churches were in Asia Minor. In his second uh, missionary journey, he begins there, he's going to revisit those churches, and at some point, the Lord gives him a dream, which we call the Macedonia Call, where he dreams of somebody calling him to come across the Macedonia, which is in northern Greece. So uh, they cross the Aegean Sea, and they uh, begin the church at Philippi, Thessalonica, as they travel down the coast to Berea, then Athens, and finally Corinth, where they be- start a church here. And it was at Corinth that Paul first crossed paths with a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. They, like Paul, 
were tent makers, and he and his wife had fled out of Italy uh, when Claudius, who was the emperor then, uh, commanded all the Jews had to leave Rome. So this is kind of the, the background, a little bit of the background of, of this particular church. It is a typical church in that it's laden with many problems. Some kind of normal problems that people have just learning to work together and, and so forth. And, and I should say just people working together, sinners working together, uh, just causes problems that even Christians have to deal with, right? But some are rather serious. I mean, Florence has some pretty serious uh, problems as well, and, we, and those, but they're good for us because they, they, we might not face some of those problems, but they are giving us principles in which we now help us understand how to deal with uh, these problems or similar problems in the church and in our own lives. And so, there's certainly a lot of practical things in this book. Um. And then, of course, verse 2 reminds us that this is uh, the, the letters written to the churches in the New Testament are written to all of us, because we all are in churches. Uh, no saint in, in the will of God is living outside of a local church. And so uh, it says there, uh, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who live in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we understand that these things are for us as well. It was normal in these days uh, when you write a letter and we see the support in many of the epistles to uh, state who you are at the beginning. We tend to you know, sign our name at the end. And of course the first benefit of this is that we realize that this has God's authority behind it because it is written by Paul who was called to be an apostle. To be an apostle meant that you had to be taught by Jesus Christ. You had to see him. You had to be taught by him. You had to be commissioned by him. And Paul, we know, uh, especially in his uh, two years or so in the wilderness, was taught by Jesus. Uh, and so he has his first-hand authority. And so we take these things very seriously. And, and so as he writes this, it, it's kind of like a professional who, if you went to visit a doctor, he'd have a, his diploma behind him. Uh, it lets us know that hopefully he knows what he's talking about, right? And, of course, we know the apostles did know what they were talking about because of their teacher. But today we want to look a little closer at how he describes himself and those he, those he is writing to. I've entitled the message, A Christian's Identity. Because what strikes me in this first part of this chapter is how Paul sees himself and how he describes those in the church. If our country and if this world has any problem, and there's the, their problems are legion, it is that people have don't know how to identify themselves, and it has led to all kinds of confusion. And so today we're going to come at it uh, in part from that direction. When Paul usually addresses himself, he does so in his relationship with God. In this case, he also points out. The Corinthians' relationship to God. He says, I am Paul, who, by the will of God, has been called to be an apostle. So I am Paul, the apostle. I'm not Paul, the tent maker. He was a tent maker when he had to be. But he is an apostle. And he says, to the church of God, who, and he basically says the same thing, you have been called 
to certain, to be a certain thing, to be among other things, saints. It's important that we understand this. In other words, he identifies himself. It's based, as he identifies himself, it's based on his relationship to God, and he does so with the saints. So the first thing Paul does is tell us that who we are, and there couldn't be anything more important than for a person to know who he is, or he, who or he or she is. You say, well, I know who I am. And if I ask you that question, who are you? You know, in just a general conversation, well, I, I, I am, and I, you would give a name. And then you say, well, beyond that, you say, well, I, this is my job. Or this is my ethnicity. You know, this is my background. This is what I do. So, we identify ourselves by maybe what we look like or what we do. And what we don't usually do, and this I think carries over into our thinking, into our mindset, is when someone asks me, who are you? We do not say, oh, I'm a child of God. I've been saved by the grace of God. I'm a Christian. Well, we do that, but, you know, we're reluctant. We do that when we get an opportunity, but we're reluctant to do that. And, and then we become reluctant to think that way. Our, our mindset is driven by what I do, what I look like, what my background is, and not what, that I am a child of God. So when I get up in the morning, I go out and I do what I do, it's not about what does a child of God do, it's what does a, a husband do, a man do, a woman do, a person who does this, has this job do, a person who looks the way I look, what, do, what does that person do? And we got to be very careful here because, though, the drive and motivation are alive is that we are children of God. And that's extremely important. The essence of sin is for us to identify ourselves by anything other than by, in, by, and through God. This is why the world is constantly trying to get us to pursue power and fame or something that tickles the flesh so that we can pursue these things and see ourselves and identify ourselves as anything but a creature who has been created by God and is responsible to God, one who is going to be judged by God. Don't want to hear about that. We want to get you to focus on something that is temporary, temporal, that really at the end of the day doesn't really mean all that much, won't mean much in a hundred years from now. Let's get all focused and bent out of shape over that. And so we identify ourselves, well, as a, I'm a leader, uh, I'm a star, I'm a businessman, I'm a lover, you know, a, a player. Now, some people identify. I've seen videos of little kids and their parents and whoever's around them have, have got them. I'm a player. Or I'm an athlete, I'm a pervert. By our looks, by our family name, perhaps some brotherhood such as the Masons, or I'm an American, or I'm in the Union, on and on it goes. And, and not that some of that stuff is not legitimate. I am an American. You know, I understand that. And there's a point in which that does play a part in who I am. But on a lesser level, for instance, one might indeed be a farmer, as opposed to a novelist. It's a legitimate distinction. The call of our sinfulness, though, is to pursue that as our main identity, 
as the goal of our life, as what we are known for. More so than as a person who is a Christian. But you know, later on, Paul will say, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile. Uh, and then he talks about uh, ethnic groups and different things like that. Uh, bond or free. All that stuff, while there is a level of, of distinction in, in a horizontal way, at the end of the day, we're, if you're in the church, you are saved by grace, and that's all that really matters. And when we make these other things to become our identity, all we do is divide. We see today why it's so important, do we not? Especially over the last few years, how important it is to identify yourself as a child of God and everything else is of secondary importance. What you did to make a living, living or to express yourself, to have fun, to exalt yourself or whatever, will not matter in eternity. You won't get into heaven. Um, it, you know, your, your ethnicity or your name or your nationality or your uh, intelligence, whatever you do, is not what's going to get you into heaven. And if it's done outside of God's will or in rebellion to him, it's just going to make hell hotter. And justly so. So our lesser identities can, if godly, play a part in our reward. In other words, God puts everybody in the situations he wants them so that they can serve him in that capacity uh, in a way that's unique. So in other words, you know, the, every Christian is different. We all have different ways which we are going to glorify God. And that's good. But if, and, and, and if we're not known for our relationship with the Lord first and foremost, then I would think we could say that in some measure I am failing at life. If what I am known for isn't have a whole lot to do with Christ, but has a whole lot to do with temporal things, then something is wrong. I was reading, uh, or not reading, but this week I heard a story. I think, again, Lord sometimes has ways of bringing things to my attention right when I need it. But there was uh, about uh, some uh, over in Papua New Guinea, some people through missionary work had uh, people had been saved, and uh, they had uh, you know grown up, they had had children, and that next generation comes along, and they some of them got saved. But in that second generation, all of a sudden, uh, some of them decided, you know what, we're losing our heritage because now we're meeting in churches, and of course, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, pagan uh, ways, uh, not this. Only that's the only way this happens. But they had traditions uh, through their paganism, uh, and they were losing our heritage. And so they decided we we need to start bringing some of this stuff back. And, and they they wanted to call themselves Christians, but they also started celebrating things that they were doing back their their in, in paganism when their uh, parents were pagans and, and lost things that uh, exalted false gods that did not exalt the Lord. And it was interesting because said in this particular case, uh, they did this. They, they had uh, some celebrations and things that they uh, did. And then a couple of the leaders, on their way back to the villages that they lived, the, you know, these are people who had named the name of Christ, but felt that heritage was more important than Christ. They go back to their uh, res- 
respect, respective uh, villages and drop over dead. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, you can, you know, I don't know what to make of that, except that sometimes God teaches us lessons. But it, it just reminds me of what we're being, people are saying, look, doesn't matter what the Bible says, my heritage is much more important than being a Christian. And, I, and so any, it doesn't matter who we are, if there's anything in our background, our heritage, that is dishonoring to the Lord, is contrary to the Word of God, then that's over and done with. We are new creatures in Jesus Christ. All things have become new. And so we've got to be careful about focusing on the past instead of what am I now as a Christian. Paul knows exactly who he is. But too often we forget right to the point of temptation and trial. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 59, says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with, with me. Paul, did, Paul wasn't confused about who he was, he wasn't confused about who he had been, a Pharisee living by the law, killing Christians. He turns his back on that. He realizes that was wrong, and now he's a Christian. He was radically God-centered. And if we're not careful, if we identify ourselves wrong, we forget who we are, we cannot be God-centered. So he wasn't a sin-maker who happened also to be a Christian. It was the other way around. And this is something that we tend to forget from time to time. So we need to read these first two verses with our name in it, especially when he refers to the Christian church, the church of Corinth here. Remember that our identity is wrapped up in being a servant of Christ. We're going to be living with him for eternity. Not doing whatever we're doing now. We're going to be up there worshiping him. And I don't know what we're going to be doing. And, I, and it's not, I don't think it's going to be just one big worship service. I think there's going to be a lot of things going on. But uh, I, we're not going to be who we are. We're going to be living for the for Him. And, and some of the things that you know God gives us now in this life are fine and good, but they're given to us to be tools to serve Him. So the first nine verses are permeated with our true identity. We must be careful of not letting of, of letting this world leverage how we think about ourselves. So he here in verse two mentions three things as he moves to the church, to the Christians, three things that have happened in our past that makes us saints. First of all, he says you were set apart, you were chosen in Christ. Definitely when he says you are sanctified in Christ Jesus. The word sanctified it's the same root word as holy and saint. It's all really the same thing. It speaks of one who has been set aside to the, uh, unto the Lord. So in this, he's referring, of course, to election where in eternity past, we were set aside to be redeemed, to be the Lord. Secondly, we were called. They're speaking about the efficacious call where the Holy Spirit comes and through conversion, calls us out of the world to be saints. And then thirdly, we believe on uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We see that called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the calling has an effect upon us. Again, when he says sanctification here, it is not to be thought of as, well, sanctification is when the Holy Spirit is conforming us to Jesus Christ. That's a form of sanctification. That's a form of setting us apart from the world to become like Christ. But sanctification here is a reference to election. The verb is not continuous as it would be if it was sanctification. The Holy Spirit continually working in us. It's the perfect passive tense. It happened to us. It is completed. It is a one-time thing that happened. This happened in eternity. It has worked out in time when he calls us to himself through the gospel message. While the gospel call goes out to all, it is those that God calls effectively that end up calling upon the Lord. I can call you to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But my outward call doesn't give the sinner life to respond, because we're born dead in our sin, right? It needs that inward call. And the word saint here, as I said, is the same word as sanctified. So we are all saints, because if you're saved, you've been set apart, not just in eternity past, but of course in time, the Holy Spirit comes and completes that call, that sanctification. And so we are all saints because we have all been sanctified. A saint is not a super a super Christian that the church recognizes as more special than the rest of us. You know, that a lot of damage has been done by Catholicism that says that a saint is somebody who was so good during their lifetime that they actually did more good work than they needed. And so it all gets dumped into a repository. And now we need that we can get a pray and they will give us some help, some of their extra good works. So, we're all saints and we've all been called, set apart unto the Lord. Now, this, does this make you think it's more of, of yourself as more special than somebody else? Well, hold on, because he's going to cut us all down to size later on in the chapter, but we'll get that today. But, you know, Calvinists are often criticized by Arminians for pride. Because they say we think God chose us and not somebody else. Well, i got a couple of things to say to that. First of all, to be saved only because God was gracious to me, humbled me, because I realized I had nothing to do with my salvation. There was nothing I could do. I was lost without hope in the world, and God in his mercy saved me. That does not exalt me. It does not uh, make me feel that I'm better than somebody else. I know that I was saved only by the grace of God. Anyone who is haughty because of the election has missed the point and probably isn't saved anyway. Secondly, it is instead the Arminian who is proud because one day, at the end of the day, he made a choice of his own will that this lost neighbor was too stupid to make. See, the difference between him and his lost neighbor is not God. See, because they say God has done it. He's died for everybody equally. He wants everybody to be saved. And now it's up to us to believe. So why do you believe in your neighbor didn't? Well, there's something in you that caused it. But we say, oh, no, 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 no. That is pride. And Paul is going to deal very specifically with that at the end of the chapter. 
So he saves, he chooses people so that no one can boast before the Lord. Look what I've done. No, you believe, if you believe, it's because the Holy Spirit enables you to believe. Lest any man can boast, they more highly of himself. And of course, this is all Peter's words, or Paul's words here kind of remind us of Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, there's a, he, he, he foreknew, he elected, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. Election doesn't save, it's unto salvation. And so at some point he calls them, and notice there's a connection here, the ones who are predestined, are called, those who are called are justified, because when we are called by the Holy Spirit, we believe and are justified, and those who be justified are glorified. So there's no subsets here. Everybody who God ordained to save, He does save, He doesn't lose any of them. There's a, you know, you see, all the ones predestined are called, all the ones called are justified. There's no, He doesn't lose any along the way. This is a great text. And so he, his call causes us to call upon him. And you see, kind of all three points are, are in Romans as well. We'll see this call mentioned a few times in this chapter. But as we read down to verse 9, we see that this calling has resulted in us becoming a different person. We've been given gifts that allow us to testify of Christ. And it comes with a ceiling that will keep us not just saved, but will keep us faithful until the very day that we stand before Him. And you detect that you are not the same as you once were. That you don't think the same way you did before you were saved. That you can see that I am now one who calls upon the Lord, not just when I got saved, uh, but I, I am one who calls upon Jesus. Always. There's nowhere else to go. There's nobody else to pray to. And if you can't see that you are now somewhat, something different than you were, that you are now sanctified as before you were not, then you need to make a calling and election sure, as Peter tells us. And this calling is again mentioned down in verse 23 and 24. Notice what it says here in chapter 1. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This calling here is not identical with preaching, that's the outward call, because this call, you know, my, my call, if, if all your, the call you're hearing is my voice, it's going to leave you as you came in. But when you hear the Holy, when the Holy Spirit moves in your heart and regenerates you, and you hear that inward call, then you are changed. You leave here differently than you did before when you came in. That's why I, I'm not thrilled about the song, the old uh, invitation song, "Just as I am, I come," because God doesn't receive us just as we are. We have to repent what we are. Is uh, bears his wrath. We are sinners by nature. We come to repentance. God changes us. 
He receives all, but it is only after repentance. We repent what? Of who we are. And we trust to call upon the name of the Lord. And so verses 2 through 7 seem to suggest that we aren't left powerless in our sinfulness, but are instead transformed into those who call upon the Lord instead. He said, I get, verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. What does that grace do? That in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God comes with the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, or it doesn't come at all. One who says, I believe in Jesus, but lives for this world and lives for himself, is a, a false a professor. There's plenty of those out there, and we're constantly called to make sure that that's not who we are. Notice also in verses 26 and 27 that Paul makes a connection between this calling and election. Where he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. So many were powerful. Not many were powerful, excuse me. Not many were of noble birth. And I'm glad for the not many because it lets us know that just because you happen to be of noble birth or powerful doesn't mean you can't be saved. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So you see, the calling is, is a, a result of his choosing. Now many have tried to deny this connection, that only those elected from eternity will be efficaciously called in time to be saved. And, and I don't know, it's so clear in Scripture that I, 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 wasn't, I was raised in Arminianism, I was raised not to believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. So I understand how in ignorance you can miss it. But once, you know, it was brought to me, you know, and it was so clear that the Bible taught this, it was, I could, you know, that I had to believe it. And I don't know why a Christian would have a hard time acknowledging that we can do nothing if God doesn't empower us. I mean, you have your a right to your own opinion. But you do not have your a right to your own facts. Paul is very clear that God elects some to believe from eternity. And re- one reason he does so is because if he didn't, no one would be saved. We've all, we're told, have gone out of the way. There's none that do it. So if he doesn't work in us, what hope do we have? So we're going to be held accountable someday for how we handle facts. Facts of God's word. To ignore them or to deny them is not a viable option. I mean, some don't like the idea of election, but the problem is is that the Bible teaches it. I've literally heard preachers stand up and say election is not the Bible. It's not. It's, it's just dishonesty because election's there. Now, it then behooves you to figure out what that means, but to just make a statement like that is to disparage the word is not be honest. Not to understand doctrine fully is one thing, but to pretend they don't exist is quite another. 
So when we properly testify of God's grace in saving us, we don't mean that he is waving us, uh, wave, waving to us, hoping that we'll respond to his invitation. And again, I don't understand why some feel it is so important to be able to decide without God's help. To have some credit in it. That, that, I, I, that, that, uh, my eternal condition must rest in some measure upon me and nobody else. No, I'm very glad that one day God interfered with my will. My will, my nature, was in bondage to sin, hated God, and one day God changed my will. I'm glad that God did that, because without that, there's no hope. You can't will yourself to be something you were not. So to deny election of grace is to identify yourself as more than you are. A partner in grace rather than a recipient of grace. And those are to- two totally different things. We are not partners in a gift. Because it's no longer a gift. We are recipients of grace. Now perhaps you are thinking that we're getting towards the end here. Perhaps you're thinking, why do you make such a, make so much of this? Why do you make it so important? What practical purpose does it have? Well, Paul seems to think it does, since in verse 26, he tells us to consider how we were called. And we'll get into these verses in more detail then. But he says, consider your calling, brothers. Because one of the problems in the Corinthian church is pride. There's device, there's divisiveness due to pride. And what he does, he knocks all that pride out from underneath them here in the very first chapter when he says, you haven't been thinking about yourselves properly. You are saved by the skin of your teeth because God in his mercy chose to save you and without that you are nothing. And that's what, that's why it's so important. But then he points out the primary application and that is why God does that is so that God receives all the glory which the last two verses are very uh, clear about that. Why does he do this? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God And because of him, you are in Christ. You're not in Christ because you were smarter than your neighbor. And just, or you're more tender. You know, you just happen to believe and they didn't. No, it's your saved from God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who become to, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast to the Lord. So if you call upon God once, how do you know you're going to do it tomorrow? So that you'll be trusting tomorrow. Well, another reason why this is important then is because back in verses 8 and 9, he says, Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? God is faithful, by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We're told over and over again in very clear language that we will inherit eternal life only if we hold fast our profession or our faith until the end. Um, 1 Corinthians 15.1 and 2 Now I would remind you, brothers, by the gospel I preach to you, which you receive, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. Now, he's not saying that, well, 
you're you're being saved, but if you slip up, you're going to lose your salvation. No, salvation is a process, and God, by His power, not only converted us, but is keeping us saved by professing Him, by not rejecting Him, by continually calling upon Him. So to think in terms merely of once saved, always saved, assumes too much. Does the Bible teach eternal security? Absolutely. He just said that in verses 8 and 9. But it also teaches the means of reaching heaven is that the power of God will keep us faithful to the end. So my security is in the power of God. Why is it okay for some, for God to exercise sovereignty and not allowing us to fall, but he oversteps his bounds if he makes sure that we get saved to start with? You know, I never have understood that. You know, I was raised, they absolutely rejected any idea that God elects people. But they said, once you get saved, God slams the lid on you and you can't get out it's lost if you wanted to. Well, wait just a minute. You're still overriding uh, our will. But how does that really, you know, help? It's surprising that Paul is thankful for the Christian church with all its problems. But is it any more surprising that God saves us and uses us? And what we want to see here is that we're no better than the Corinthian church. We have the same issues and we need the same power of God. Nowhere in the Bible is any man or woman ever thanked for believing or given any credit for their salvation. But part of our identity had better be that we only deserve God's wrath. But glory be to God, we have been called by His grace with unmerited favor. We must certainly agree with these things, not to mention ourselves, that we are unworthy. And the good thing, which is always has already been accomplished, and all those good things yet to be accomplished are manifestation of God's infinite grace in me bestowed upon someone who is unworthy. And it's important, imperative for me to understand that is who I am, a sinner saved by grace. And so if God has effectually called us because he is faithful by nature, he will not promise something and not deliver it. His call is not invitation is the whole package that will get us to glory. Let me uh, just kind of skip a little bit of this. Um, I don't think it's, it's not anything necessarily new, things that we've covered before. But in verses 4 through 8, we've been given everything we need. to be. We, we see here they, the Corinthian church has been given gifts, right? And, and they were still a mess. So we, we know that just because you've been given gifts is not all that it takes. They, they had many gifts, and we'll get into that, of course, later on in the book. I lost my place here, just give me a second. So we've been given everything we need to be a testimony of the Lord until it says that he appears on the day of the Lord. And, and it reminds us here what we saw in Revelation that the thing that we're waiting for next is the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not waiting for a secret rapture, seven years of darkness, and then the appearing. We're waiting for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the next thing that's perfectly consistent with what we saw in First and Second Thessalonians Revelation. That all um, is... This is said to the Corinthian church to cause us to reject then the myth 
that the primitive New Testament church is somehow was better off than we are. They were more pure, more theologically stronger than we are. We really, really don't see any evidence of that in Scripture, and I don't, I don't think you see it historically either. But I am thankful for this book because it shows us why God saved us, what he expects out of the churches that he establishes. You know, as we saw in Revelation, I don't want the Lord to remove the candlestick from this church because we have decided that we know better than he does. We deceive ourselves. We think we can retreat within the church walls to escape the evils of the world. The Corinthian epistles inform us that the world too easily and too quickly finds its way into the church because the church is full of sinners to start with. So the church is not a place where we go to escape sin. It is a place that we go to confront our sin and to be stimulated to love, to encourage each other to love and the good work. The church is not a Christian clean room, as someone said. It's where we, where we get away from sin. It's a hospital where sinners go to learn how to overcome their sin through the ministry of the Word of God. Sometimes newly saved pagans will come out and perhaps shock us by their behavior, but that's a good thing because that's who the gospel is for. The gospel is for those who know that they are sick. Sometimes Christians forget where we came from. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. So let me just sum up, and with this we're done. Our identity is sinners saved by grace, snatched from the dominion of sin, when we were unable to help ourselves. So the over, we are then given gifts in order to serve and to glorify the King. We're given assurance of eternal life and glory. And the practical application of all this is that we don't have to listen to the TV commercials that tell us how inadequate we are if we don't have their product. We don't have to listen to our friends and family if they tell us that we have to have a certain amount of money or a certain amount of pleasure, stuff to be fulfilled or happy, that we have to embrace whatever social views are out there. This is the winning side. Don't let anyone tell you that, we, that you have to embrace the culture around us. That's the winning side because God wins in the end. And please don't debase yourself and identify yourself by desires that arise from your sinful nature. We aren't animals. God has given us an identity that transcends all this world has to offer that cannot be taken away because it's secured in Jesus Christ. Knowing who you are will make all the difference in how you live. Any questions or comments? This is one of the great phraseologies and all of hymology where he says he, the last verse, he as though I accursed and left alone. I as though he embraced and welcomed all this. Christ took our place upon the cross and bore our sins, the guilt of our sins upon himself. Uh, appreciate your, att your uh, attention. Hope you have a good week. Peace.